From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Democrats lead in a Georgia race that would give them the slimmest possible majority in the U.S. Senate. Meanwhile, some members of Congress, including from Colorado, will try to change the outcome of the presidential election. Despite no evidence of widespread voter fraud, we'll reflect on a remarkable political moment. Then, the vaccine rollout among older Coloradans. I mean, I'm 91. I realize I'm not going to be here forever, but I'd like to take advantage of what I can. Later, short stories about the joys and hardships of living in the Rockies. And Coloradans share their pandemic happy places. I first came there in 1974 when I was just an eight-year-old kid. And I sat at this specific tree with my mom and dad and my brother and our dog. And we uh, picnic there and stuff. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The battle for control of the U.S. Senate is down to its last few thousand votes, and the last-ditch fight to block Joe Biden from the presidency starts in a few hours. Several Colorado members of Congress are playing a prominent role in that. For perspective, political scientist Seth Maskett is back. He directs the uh, Center for uh, American Politics at the University of Denver. Seth, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Today's going to be a day, you just tweeted. Let's start with that battle for control of the Senate with the election in Georgia. Democrat Raphael Warnock has been declared the winner in his race as of this morning. Democrat John Ossoff is leading in his contest, but the AP has not called it. If Ossoff wins, the Democrats take control. Did the Democrats' performance in Georgia surprise you? Um. I always saw this as a possibility, but still, this is this is probably somewhat better than we would have expected them to do, you know, given the election results uh, back in November. Um, It looked very uh, narrow. Um, For the most part, Democrats were underperforming a little bit how Joe Biden was doing across the country and and in Georgia. So it looks like the Democrats made up a little bit of ground in these runoff elections, which was, uh, you know, a little bit of a surprise there. If Ossoff wins, I'll point out this will also put Colorado's two Democratic senators in the majority, but it will be a razor thin majority. Each party would have 50 senators and then it would be up to Democratic Vice President Kamala Harris to break any ties. Is that enough to help President Biden with his agenda or are we going to see continuing gridlock? I mean, it would be a razor thin majority, but the difference of that one seat uh, can make all the difference. I mean, it, that means that, you know, for one thing, Biden would be able to basically seat the cabinet he wants. Um, it also means he would probably have the votes to fill any uh, Supreme Court vacancies that should occur, uh, to fill any uh, other judge positions that occur. Um, it's a little harder for him, um, even if he has this narrow majority, to do a lot of you know, the, the agenda he campaigned on. I think there, mm. there'd be limits to what he could do. Um, some Democrats have talked about doing things like uh, 
uh, getting rid of the filibuster. And it's not clear that the votes are there for that. Um, uh, Senator Joe Manchin in, in West Virginia, who I think would be the, the most conservative Democrat uh, in, in the in the next Senate, uh, has said he's he's not comfortable doing that. So there would be limitations on what Democrats could do. They can't afford to lose even a single vote. Um, but they would be able to do some things. They'd have a lot of power over the budget. They could probably enact some sort of health care reforms um, and some education reforms. And, and uh, whereas they just would not have the power to do almost any of those things uh, if they only have 49 seats. How do you see Senators Bennett and Hickenlooper navigating a potentially very narrow majority? This, again, is assuming that Ossoff maintains his lead. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about such a narrow majority is that almost any senator becomes pivotal. Um, again, a lot of the focus will probably be on Manchin as, as the most conservative member of the Senate. But uh, Hickenlooper in particular would be one of the more conservative members. Um, he's someone who has made kind of a career of being able to work across party lines um, to make uh, make some friends among more moderate Republicans. And he might be someone who on, uh, you know, on, on, on trickier pieces of legislation could potentially forge some uh, bipartisan compromises that could really make a difference. Hmm. It's it's, it's going to be hard to do that. And, you know, given how polarized Congress is right now. But that's that's a skill set that uh, that that he probably brings to the table there. And if Ossoff loses in Georgia, talk about that scenario. Um, if he loses again, it'll be very narrow. Um, but in that case, uh, Republicans retain uh, majority control of the Senate, and uh, that could spell some real difficulties for uh, Biden enacting almost anything in his agenda. Um, he would have a hard time probably getting a few cabinet members confirmed. Um, there's a good chance, I would think, that uh, the you know Republican Senate majority would um, prevent Biden from even filling Supreme Court uh, vacancies or, you know, or filling them with anyone other than um, what, you know, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would would approve of. Um, so that, that would really put a lot of limits on what Biden could hope to accomplish. It's just amazing how much is riding on one race at this point. Do you think that this reflects a change in Georgia politics or, or does it tell us something about what's happening nationally? Is it a repudiation of President Trump? Is it something larger? I mean, there's a number of things that have been going on in Georgia for a while now. Um, this is a project that uh, Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor there back in 2018, um, has been working on for the better part of a decade now in terms of recognizing that there was a potential Democratic majority there, that there were you know, a lot of folks, if, if they had regular access to voting if they had uh, uh, the information that they needed to get to the polls and to know how to vote, um, that, that they could potentially flip that state. Um, but it took a lot of advocacy. It took a lot of organization to do that. So, you know, part of it was that um, part of it was probably also had something to do with uh, President Trump's behavior really since Election Day in November. Um, he has been, uh, you know, kind of trashing uh, Georgia's electoral processes, uh, trashing its Republican secretary of state and its governor uh, for being unwilling to you know, essentially overturn their own presidential election results and help him out. Um, this has put, I think, Republican voters in, in a bit of a bind who um, you know, want to support the Republican candidates, but also want to support 
uh, President Trump, um, who has been basically saying that their whole election system is illegitimate. Mm. Um, that, that, that's, you know, that's, it, it's hard to know what to do with that. I think, you know, it's possible some may have just responded to that by simply not voting. One prominent Colorado Republican this morning tweeting, if Trump had conceded when he lost two months ago, the GOP would have held the Senate. Uh, that this could have been a different outcome if the president's comportment had been different. But let's talk about this uh, effort in Congress today coming up, gosh, in just a few hours to certify the results of the presidential election. Normally, this would be pretty much a rubber stamp. There have been objections filed through the years, but what's different this time? Yeah, the the big difference, you know, as, as you note, there um, there have been objections uh, when Congress actually goes through the process of, of counting the, uh, the the state's electoral votes reports. Um, usually those objections are done by a, a very small number of people in Congress uh, to simply point out some either some voting irregularities or, or to protest the way that uh, elections are being conducted in some places or talk about restrictions on the ballot. What you really have unusual today is that you, you have the bulk of the Republican Party in Congress, um, you know, probably a majority of, of House Republicans who are on board with doing these protests in a number of different swing states, uh, not with the intention so much of, of protesting, but with actually trying to change the result, um, with actually trying to install uh, Donald Trump uh, on January 20th rather than Joe Biden, who won the election. Um, so that that is a very different approach to this. Um, it's it's a, you know, much more, uh, you know, anti-democratic, small d, uh, you know, uh, opposed to the actual election results. And it takes uh, uh, members of, of both chambers in order to actually file a real complaint. Mm-hmm. That is, um, if, say, Arizona's vote uh, is presented today and there's a member of the House who objects and then there's a member of the Senate who objects. Um, That can slow down this whole vote counting process quite a bit. That would mean that all the House members would go to their chamber. All the senators would go to their chamber. They can conduct up to two hours of debate and then cast a vote. Um, Only if members, uh, you know, only if both chambers vote to exclude that state's votes, does that actually happen? That's very this is unlikely to happen, given that Democrats control the House. Um, so we don't really expect there to be any actual change of the voting, but it can slow down the process quite a bit. It can draw a lot of attention and it's a chance for, um, uh, defenders of president Trump to, you know, essentially make a lot of noise and, and, uh, you know, try to further tarnish, uh, Biden's incoming presidency. So this gives us a sense of what the procedure will be today, uh, as the certification of the electoral college votes occurs in Washington. So you have in Colorado uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who represents Grand Junction and Pueblo, and Congressman Doug Lamborn of Colorado Springs, saying they'll support the objections. Congressman Ken Buck, who represents a lot of the Eastern Plains, says he'll vote to certify the Electoral College results. Buck is also chair of the state GOP. So that strikes me as a, a rift in the Republican Party right now, and certainly in the Colorado delegation. Do you think that'll make it harder for Colorado Republicans to work together? It's an interesting distinction there because, uh, you know, Boebert and and Buck and Lamborn, they're all pretty conservative. Um, This isn't really an ideological rift so much. Um, It's possible that, uh, uh, you know, Buck sees his own role as a party leader, that he has some uh, role to, um, you know, to sort of protect the more traditional uh, party and constitutional roles here. Uh, Buck has also expressed some concern that 
you know, drawing out these these objections and these protests uh, could ultimately hurt the Republican Party, um, that it could undermine uh, some support for the Electoral College, which has been a big part of how Republicans have managed to win presidential elections in recent decades. Right. Um, yeah, he, he seems to be concerned about sort of the, the long term uh, ramifications of, of doing these protests, whereas, um, well, Boebert, you know, she's she's on the job just a few days at this point. Um, uh, has been, uh, you know, much more embracing of this approach. Buck tweeting uh, just in the last few days, the founders trusted the states to decide elections, not members of Congress. Boebert tweeting this morning, today is 1776. What if, if the effect of, of uh, today's actions is not to prevent Joe Biden to be a president, given that the House is in Democratic control, what is it portend for legitimacy and democracy going forward what is the i don't want to call it a symbolic effect but the the deeper effect maybe well one of the real concerns there is that going forward a lot of uh republicans you know both voters and office holders will simply not perceive joe biden's presidency as legitimate they, they won't see him as the true president um this makes it uh, a lot harder for any Republicans in Congress to actually work with Joe Biden and work with uh, Democrats in Congress on any pieces of legislation. You know, not only because they, you know, there's polarization and they don't necessarily like his agenda, but also um, their own voters, their own supporters would see it as an act of betrayal um, to even acknowledge Biden as the president. Mm. Um, that that makes it a lot harder for anything to get done. Um Generally, this this, uh, you know, bodes fairly ill for uh, for democracy, for for democratic elections. Um, one of the, uh, you know, the key features for keeping a democracy running is that the, the parties accept when they lose, um, that they're that they understand that, uh, you know, they are not going to win every election. Um, the other team gets to govern once in a while. And if they want to win, they simply have to do better next time around. Um, right now, there's a there's a fairly large chunk of the Republican Party that is simply refusing to acknowledge a loss. And, uh, you know, that's that's very dangerous and makes it very hard for elections going forward. Democracy, in a way, depends on someone being willing to lose. Seth Maskett, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. He's a political scientist who leads the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver. You can watch today's joint session of Congress at CPR.org. Tomorrow, we'll talk to a professor who studies political psychology. What's the experience of the last few months been like for you? We're interested in your headspace. Email us at coloradomatters at cpr.org to share your psychological experience of this political year and year prior. Colorado Matters at CPR.org. A century from now, pupils of U.S. history may study today as a watershed moment in the nation's democracy. In Washington, Republicans in the House and Senate are mounting challenges to the presidential election results of several states. No court has sustained their case, and it's unlikely to do more than delay the certification of Democrat Joe Biden's electoral college win. But the issue has driven a deep wedge between Americans, with many of President Trump's supporters believing the election was stolen. Ahead of today's proceedings, CPR public affairs reporter Benta Birkeland talked to voters in El Paso County. Their congressman, Republican Doug Lamborn, is joining the objection. Hi, Benta. 
Hi, Ryan. So you were in a relatively conservative area. What were you hearing from people? Yes, I was in Monument. It's a small town nestled in the foothills in the northern part of El Paso County. It's near the U.S. Air Force Academy. The Republican voters I spoke to all believe the election had widespread voter fraud. They think President Trump won the election. And this is in line with what an NPR poll found in December. Only a quarter of the Republican respondents said they accept the presidential election results. Did they give you specific reasons they believe the election was fraudulent? It mirrored a lot of the claims we've heard from President Trump. Allegations of ballot stuffing, lack of bipartisan election judges, voters didn't trust independent audits. They questioned how on election night the totals in swing states looked good for President Trump, and then in the following days swung to Biden. Now, election officials have explained that late counting of Democratic-leaning absentee ballots account for that shift. Uh, Trump supporter Nancy Jean She said the congressional debate, she referred to this as a Hail Mary on steroids. But she says she hopes the debate can shine a light on changes that need to happen. Most countries have found that only paper ballots are truly dependable. And when you start getting electronic and or um, doing these mail out ballots, it just opens up for so much fraud that I think we need to sit down and agree across all parties that this is an okay going forward. I I would note that the courts have rejected the Trump campaign's claims of widespread fraud because of a lack of evidence. And the effort to overturn the election does have pushback from some Republicans in Congress. I, I take to heart what she says, though, the idea that if this is an opportunity to increase people's confidence in the election system, uh, that might be one lawmaker sees. Uh, did you talk to anyone unhappy with Republican uh, objection efforts? Well, it, it definitely can feel like people on opposite sides of this are living in different realities. And Bruce Eggleson is an unaffiliated voter. He supported Joe Biden. He strongly opposes these Republican efforts. And Eggleson says it's not only dangerous, but he thinks it will divide the country even more. I've been following it. I think it's despicable that they're doing that. I think there's no evidence of voter fraud whatsoever. And anybody that thinks that there is, is just deluding themselves. What about Representative Doug Lamborn's role here? Were people aware he's part of the objections? What do they think of it? You know, the Republicans I talked to were incredibly engaged on the issue. They weren't necessarily aware that their own congressman was planning to object. They said they're glad Lamborn's challenging the results. When one voter heard of Lamborn's involvement, he told me he's got my vote again. Another woman said she feels like millions of Trump voters were disenfranchised. Lamborn isn't the only Republican from Colorado taking part in the objections. Newly sworn in Congresswoman Lauren Boebert has also joined that effort, Benta. Yep. And she was actually the first in the delegation to say she would do that. And she's tweeted quite a bit about it. Um, I, I would point out that Colorado's third Republican representative, Ken Buck, isn't objecting. And so he joined that letter explaining that Congress doesn't have the power to reject electors sent by the states. It's an interesting position. You know, Buck is a strong supporter of President Trump. He's also the head of the Colorado Republican Party, and he has tried to reassure members of his own party that they can trust Colorado's election safeguards. Um, On the other side, Democratic Congressman Joe Neguse from Boulder is expected to have a large role in the House floor debate, arguing against the challenge. 
Benta, just briefly, is there anything people on the opposite sides of this issue agree on? You know, the country's divided and they don't see a clear path forward. Um, everyone I talk to, Republicans, the unaffiliated voter, even Democrats have said that um, they do want the country to come together somehow. Steve Bassett is a Republican and his girlfriend's a diehard Democrat. And he says, you know, he wants people to respect differences and don't attack and hate people they disagree with. I mean, just be okay with what other people believe and don't take it so damn personally. Benta Berkland, thanks so much for being with us. That's our CPR public affairs reporter. You can watch today's joint session of Congress at CPR.org. Earlier this week, CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, took us to a place that has helped her cope during the pandemic, a hiking trail near Grand Junction. Okay, I've just arrived at the Clunker Trail. I've got my jacket on. I've got my ski pants. We've been asking for your pandemic escapes. Mine is at Royal Gorge, and reason being I first came there in 1974 when I was just an eight-year-old kid. This is Joseph Gonzalez of Canyon City. He grew up in Kansas and used to visit the Royal Gorge with his family. And I sat at this specific tree with my mom and dad and my brother and our dog, and we uh, picnic there and stuff. Well, we started coming back year after year, and as the years went on, I started coming up there myself and then um, started bringing my kids all the way from Kansas, from Wichita, to go there. And I finally compelled me to actually move here. Gonzalez says the Arkansas River rushing by keeps him connected to where he grew up because it also flows through Kansas. Anyways, I go to that spot very often. There's some really beautiful trails. It's up at a place called Elkhorn Picnic Area. And I've even camped out there many times. Anyways, be safe and have a prosperous and good new year. Joseph Gonzalez of Canyon City, who says he'd like his ashes scattered at the Royal Gorge. We did call the park, and while they appreciate that sentiment, they do frown on that. So what's your pandemic happy place? It could be a park, trail, just a different room of the house. And if it's a secret spot, don't worry about sharing the name. Just describe what you see and how it makes you feel. Leave us a voicemail. The number is 303-871-9191, extension 480. That's CPR's main phone number, 303-871-9191, extension 480. You can also email us, Matters at CPR.org. And even better, record audio on your smartphone, perhaps from your favorite spot, and email it. Again, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. And we'll continue in the next half hour with how vaccines are rolling out to folks 70 plus. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. As Colorado tries to reboot the economy, there's a growing problem for working parents. The early childhood workforce isn't keeping up with demand. 
We're asking child care providers for quality care at a low cost that parents can afford, and that's an equation that doesn't quite work. I'm Jenny Brendine from CPR News. Listen through the month for our series about how Colorado is confronting the challenge of the workforce behind the workforce, or find stories online at CPR.org. Tri-County Health Department has joined a growing list of counties that say they're not prepared to vaccinate older Coloradans. It has been a week since Governor Jared Polis announced that Coloradans 70 and up are now eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. But local health officials say the rollout of what's called Phase 1B has been unclear. Plus, some counties still haven't finished vaccinating health care workers. To spell out what we do and don't know about this phase, CPR's Claire Cleveland joins us. She's on our coronavirus reporting team. Hi, Claire. Hi, Ryan. Let's start with that news. Tri-County, which oversees Adams, Arapahoe and Douglas counties, they announced they're not prepared yet to vaccinate folks 70 and older. What reasons did they give? They said that hospitals and doctor's offices in those three counties are still working on getting all of 1A frontline healthcare workers vaccinated, and that really there just aren't enough vaccines to begin immunizing adults over 70. Limited amounts of the vaccine are shipped to the state every week, um, and from there, the vaccines are divided among the counties in the state. Each county ends up with a very limited quantity from week to week. And what other counties have said they're not ready for this phase? Well, most other counties in the state are unable to start vaccinating 1B eligible Coloradans at this time. Um, There are 15 counties, however, that are currently taking appointments for phase 1B, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have the supplies. Oh, yeah, I can imagine the excitement of getting an appointment, but that doesn't mean that they have the doses. Uh, For the counties that are ready to move to seniors, though, how would someone 70 or older go about getting the vaccine? Well, if you live in one of those 15 counties that are taking appointments, which are mostly rural or smaller, um, that includes places like Delta, Lincoln and Pitkin County, you can go online, make an appointment or at least put your information in so the county can contact you when they do have the supplies. Um, Otherwise, the state has recommended that seniors reach out to their local health department or primary care doctor. But this has led to a deluge of phone calls and not many answers for seniors. Unfortunately, right now, we're just in a bit of a holding pattern. You'll have to wait for more information. So how much difference is there from county to county in terms of getting the vaccine? There's a lot of variability from county to county, depending on that county's supply, which is based on census data. Smaller counties get fewer vaccines than larger ones. But it also depends on how well that county has done on vaccinating that 1A group of frontline healthcare workers. It's been hard to get information from these counties. Many public health officials at the county level were surprised by the news of 70 and older adults being added to the 1B group um, because of that limited vaccine supply. This did indeed come as news to them. What have you heard from older Coloradans who are supposed to be eligible for inoculation? I've heard that they are really excited to get the vaccine, but they're frustrated by the process. Here's one person I spoke with. Her name is Joan Grady. It's stupid. Obviously, the government has not done a good job in distribution. If I get the double dose, it'll free me of the thought that I'm going to catch COVID and die. I mean, I'm 91. I realize I'm not going to be here forever, but I'd like to take advantage of what I can. 
I know that most of the state is still working through phase 1A, so that includes frontline health care workers. Is there an estimate, Claire, as to when that phase will be done? Yes, January 15th is when the state expects to have all or most of 1A healthcare workers vaccinated with at least their first dose. Many will have received their second dose as well. They say that at that time, there will be more information for those in phase 1B. Governor Jared Polis said he anticipates that Coloradans over 70 will be vaccinated in the next four to five weeks. Um, But that all depends on vaccine supplies. Once people 70 and older are vaccinated, then the state will move on to frontline essential workers, including teachers and childcare, likely beginning at the end of February. I think what's so helpful about your explanation, Claire, is that it's quite possible to be in one county and be having a different experience from maybe a friend or a colleague in the adjacent county. That's why this may not look uniform. Uh, Mm -hmm. As you've said, a major obstacles... A major obstacle that is for counties is the lack of vaccine. Does the state have a plan to get more vaccines to those places so that 1B can begin? Well, it depends on the federal government and what supplies they give the state. Colorado has been getting shipments since early December. And so far, more than 120,000 people have been vaccinated here. Um, Polis said that they'll continue to ramp up as workplaces and hospitals host clinics that can service hundreds of people a day. If lack of supply is such a problem, how is the state tracking how many vaccines have gone out and where they've gone? Well, the state just released a new data dashboard on its website that was yesterday, which they say will be updated daily in the afternoon. The data shows how many people have been vaccinated and the total number of providers in the state, which is currently 279. Each vaccination is reported to the Colorado Immunization Information System, which is where the dashboard pulls that data from. As more vaccines become available, the state says it will provide a more detailed data breakdown, including the number of doses administered on any given day and which vaccine was administered. It's funny, I do so little driving these days, but I look at so many different dashboards because of COVID. (laughs) Um, Has the state released any guidance for Coloradans who have questions? Like, is there a place they can get more information about the vaccine rollout? Yes, the state has an online resource as well as a hotline that Coloradans can use to find more information. Both are called CoHelp, C-O-Help. More information on this is in my story on CPR.org. Thanks for sharing your reporting, Claire. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Claire Cleveland is on CPR's coronavirus reporting team. COVID-19 only started to surge in Mesa County in the past few months, but the pandemic's economic devastation arrived there much earlier. In the spring, when people suddenly faced job losses and grocery shortages, a grassroots movement sprouted to help. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg finds almost a year later, the effort has only grown. Tyson Ellis is carefully scanning long tables heaped with food and other essentials. Tomatoes, bread, salsa, diapers. Uh, Mac and cheese. Not to uh, cook cook-friendly right now. All right, so we're not cooking. That's all right. Yeah. As the warm church bustles around them, volunteer Sarah Rogers gestures toward a large pile of candy and snacks. So you want some? Oh, yeah. A little bit of everything? Do you like the cheese crackers? Oh, yeah. They're my downfall. (laughs) It's Tuesday, known as Distribution Day, for the group Grand Junction Mutual Aid. Ellis tries to always make it. 
I just like I actually look forward to watching people get a little bit of happiness and hope. <laughs> as much as uh, getting the food is nice, but. <laughs> Ellis, who right now lives in the tent, is one of about a hundred people who will walk through the food line today. Grand Junction Mutual Aid also delivers food boxes and estimates it feeds about 500 families a month. And food assistance is just one arm of this giant organization, a group that was born in mid-March after founder Jacob Richards emerged from a wilderness trip teaching a bunch of school kids. Came back and it was a different world. One where toilet paper and hand sanitizer were impossible to find, and cheap, reliable food staples like pasta were scarce. Richards is a former activist and had given up community organizing years before, but he could see locals needed a way to support one another and cut through their own panic. As soon as people are taking action and have some agency, everything's a little less scary. So Richards launched the Grand Junction Mutual Aid Facebook group. Within a couple hours, I realized we were on to something, and within three days, we had 7,000 members. Now it has twice that. Members make requests on the page for help, like firewood or jackets for their kids, and responses often pour in. The group has also grown a vast network of volunteers, people who work with seniors, the unhoused community, and others. Richard says early in the pandemic, volunteers made 50,000 masks to donate to local healthcare workers. You know, I think mutual aid really takes that idea of like the, the marketing slogan you see way too much nowadays of we're all in it together and we make that real. And it's most visible at the Tuesday distribution event at Grand Junction's Unitarian Universalist Church. Starting in the morning, people can both drop off donations and take what they need. Due to COVID-19, only a few recipients are allowed in the building at a time, and a line stretches into the parking lot. As Megan Crookshank waits her turn, she starts to cry. It's uh, my first time struggling like this. She was a photographer for a local studio before she lost her job in the pandemic. She still has a place to live, but doesn't know for how long. Crookshank feels some comfort being here alongside others also facing hard times. It sounds so terrible to say that, because I don't want anyone to be in a bad situation, but it helps to know that I'm not in this situation by myself. By showing up today, she's now part of a community where there's no big separation between those who give and those who receive. Many volunteers also take donated food home to their families every week, and some have experienced homelessness. Cindy Stewart has lived unhoused a few times and never had anything like this group back then. Oh, it would have been the world to me. So Stewart volunteers as much as she can now. Today, wearing her sock monkey hat over her long gray hair, she'll make deliveries to people in a big van someone donated to her. Stewart loves seeing how happy it can make someone to receive a box of food and a bit of connection. So it's a blessing to us all, you know, just people helping people. With no forms to fill out to get that help. No interviews needed. Only requirement is if you're hungry, let us know, you know, and we'll try to get you some food. Something to count on when so much remains uncertain. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. 
An obsession with the Rocky Mountains drives Heather Mateo Sappenfield to write. An obsession not just with their topography, but with the people of the Rockies, who have to navigate economic, social, and racial disparities. Sappenfield lives in Vail. Her new collection of short stories is called Lyrics for Rock Stars. She speaks with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrea. Thank you. You picked a passage to read from the short story, The Oldest Living Man in America. Could you set it up for us and, and then read that passage? Oh, absolutely. Um, this is the final story in the collection, and the collection is actually dedicated to my grandfather, who was for a time the oldest living man in America at 111. Wow. Uh, yeah. And um, But this scene is a 109-year-old man who is watching Neil Armstrong take his first steps on the moon while remembering his boyhood in early Denver, specifically his father leaving to fight for the Confederacy in the Civil War um, with the rest of his family, though he didn't believe in slavery. The oldest living man in America. My father trotted away on a fine bay horse in the settling dust of a stagecoach. Mama said she watched till a plane swallowed him. Two months later, a letter arrived. He'd been assigned to an artillery unit along with his brothers. Mama took heart that he was not in the infantry nor the militia. He wrote that they had sequestered his horse first thing as well as his brother's steeds. He said his father was in the militia along with nearly every man from the county, gentlemen and crackers alike. He said the McNichol men celebrated a grand reunion. By the time I was old enough to fully comprehend this letter, it had grown lacy and its creases were almost air. It was the only letter she got. She wrote, but did not tell him he had a son. For the better part of my life, I gnawed on this omission. Then illness stole Eulalie, and I stood gaping at my own life's contradictions. Hmm. Beautiful. I noticed that uh, in a lot of your stories, you intermingle history, um, you know, this battle, and then also um, lots of other, the man, the first living man on the moon, the first man on the moon. And um, I wonder why history is so critical to your writing. Oh, I just think we are, all of us, woven into history and setting, and that no matter how separated we feel from it, it affects us. I mean, even in this moment here when I'm having this interview with you, the histories of what's been around us, what's maybe gone on in radio before, what's gone on with COVID and how we're conducting this interview, all those things come into play along with the personal histories of what has happened this morning with each of us and, and how they blend together. Um, and so I love to bring together the history of this area that I love so well as a Colorado native, and then create a rich, complex character and, and have them meet that. Usually some sort of a history that we may have not even be aware or, or readers may not even have been aware occurred in Colorado. I love that aha moment too, where you realize, oh, um, I didn't know that went on here. Mm. Um, and, and the same thing for the character is having that sort of aha moment um, where they are growing. So I love to bridge that 
having the character sort of have that aha moment at the same time as the reader. One author said of your collection, Heather Mateus Sappenfield has drawn a map of Colorado and written a legend that describes the inner workings of people's hearts. Is there something uniquely challenging about living in the Rockies? (laughs) Well, I think that... Um, I think this has always been a beautiful but a challenging place to live for multiple reasons. I mean, if living in the mountains themselves, um, the climate for years was so difficult. Um, And, you know, we were settled by mining and then railroads and eventually, you know, roads and, and things like that. So I think that that in itself is difficult. The modern day problems of it are, you know, like where I live, there's wonderful tourism and it's a great place to come ski, especially now for people to be outdoors. But, you know, my husband's a teacher and I'm a writer. And I mean, I think we have one of the highest suicide rates in Mm -hmm. the country. So it is also a challenging place to live um, as far as stress of just making ends meet. And we have an entire immigrant culture here. Our high schools are over 50% Latino. Um, and so I think that that is also something that goes on here that makes it beautiful, but also um, can be make it a difficult place to live. Not that there's any culture clash in that way, but just that we have so many layers up here and we're all you know trying to make it and create create a beautiful life in these places. Yeah. The Rocky Mountains, as we said, and adventures in the Rockies are a theme in a lot of your stories. One in Mm -hmm. particular is one called Thinking's Deadly. It's about a woman (laughs) whose husband dies in an ice climbing accident. Her family asks her why her husband was so irresponsible, um, but she doesn't see it that way. And in Vail, where you live, you're surrounded by people who take risks, who long for this adrenaline rush. How do you see that? Well, I mean, that's, I mean, even skiing, we lose people skiing all the time. I mean, sport and adventure, I think we all strive to have something that makes us feel alive. And it can be an external adventure like skiing or ice climbing or whatever that may be, or it can be something that you're working on internally, right? And so you're trying to get through that. It just depends upon where you are within yourself during that time. I think that where I live up here in Vail and in Colorado, we, we tend to have a lot of people that come that have the mindset of wanting to push the envelope physically um, just because of what, what it offers as far as recreation and things you can do with, you know, whether it's ice climbing, skiing, backcountry skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, um, you name it. You know, Colorado can offer that. Um, but you don't necessarily have to go to a place like this even to have those experiences either. So I hope that the stories also speak beyond this place to people who who are seeking those things around the whole country and the world. This is Colorado Matters. If you're just joining us, we're talking to author Heather Mateu Sappenfield. She's the author of a new collection of short stories. It's called Lyrics for Rock Stars. And I want to talk about children in your stories. Um, A lot of them um, take a major role in your stories. And um, they're keen observers of their families. I felt like they almost seem to know too much. And your first story, Indian Prayers, told from a young girl's perspective. Her mother tells her that her dad has left the family for another woman. Why tell this from a child's perspective? 
you know, it's an interesting, <laughs> these, are, these are the choices an author makes, right? And, and w the collection is divided into two sections, Songs of Innocence and Songs of Wisdom. And so much of who we are as our experiences as children form who we become later in life. So the stories progress sort of chrono chronologically in that way. Um, kind of looking at what exactly is innocence and what really is wisdom, what, in, in, with what we gain as we move through adulthood, coming to the ends of our lives. Is that really the wisdom? Um, and so it's, I begin from the child's perspective because I wanted to move through from that place all the way through the spectrum of life, but also because it, when you are with children in stories and you're reading about children in stories as an adult, inherently there's an irony in that you know more than they do. Um, right. we, we, we have that quote unquote wisdom, right? And so we're judging and watching and experiencing these things with them. Um, and, and we're worried for them, you know, we're, we're thinking. And so there's this extra layer to the story when it's told by a child that is naive and moving along and learning about life and losing that naivety. You've said you really love children. And, and I wonder mm -hmm. what what is it that makes them play such a prominent role in your stories and um, what you're trying to say about them as, as young people? Well, I think what, what it really comes down to, I think... <laughs> I think all of us are still in many ways holding on to that child inside mm -hmm. and to that teen inside. And so as I would write about those children or teens moving through ages, um, I'm hoping that the reader can really identify or maybe not identify and have to hold at arm's length what's going on. Um, and and draw out that aspect of themselves too, to connect at that level with the story. I want to go back to the story, Thinking's Deadly, uh, where a woman's husband dies in an ice climbing accident. Um, mm -hmm. And Leah, the main character in the story, has a close encounter with a bear that leads <laughs> to this catharsis. And I wonder how the bear made it into the story and what its role was exactly. Well. I am. I have done many things in my life. I'm an outdoorsy person, and thus I, I live here, and I've been a ski instructor and raced mountain bikes and, and done all of these things. And that actually came from all of these stories have roots in my life. I either experienced them or I heard about them or I saw them or there was some part, aspect of history that I experienced, and I went, oh, my gosh, you know, and that changed how I looked at something. Um, so in this case, I had a friend who lost a husband in an ice climbing accident, mm. and she was so stoic that it really stuck with me, that loss. Um, but then in conjunction, a couple of years later, I was literally um, trail running behind my house, and a storm had come in, and I was running downhill, and I, I was just hell-bent for election, and the wind was blowing the trees sideways, and I just happened out the corner of my eye to see a huge, huge bear mm. running perpendicular to my route. And it just went up and I, I stopped and I watched it go up and over the trail. And if I had not stopped, we would have intersected. Um, and that, has, that stays with you, <laughs> right. watching a bear running full tilt. 
um, they're fast. <laughs> right, yeah. I imagine. You wrote this collection of short stories over a period of 20 years, and sometimes short story collections can feel to the reader incomplete or not satisfying. But just to wrap up, yours feel very whole. What do you like about writing short stories, the genre? Oh, they're so hard to write. I find them the most challenging, and I think that's what I love about it. You come into a short story right in the middle of things with a character and you're going to, you can know you're going to head into the crux of something and i love that you can read them in one sitting you can you can come it's perfect before bed and you know and and then kind of let it marinate when you're finished i love the economy of language that every single sentence needs to be moving that story forward but also advancing the theme and advancing the theme of the whole collection i just love the beautiful little concise thing that a short story is. Heather, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrea. Heather Mateus Sappenfield has written a collection of short stories called Lyrics for Rock Stars. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Thanks for spending time with us, and thanks to the team that brings Colorado Matters to the air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Shalsa. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.